Hello, everybody, and welcome to more of a comment than a question. My name is Smriti Mehta, and joining me is my friend and co-host, Paul Connor. Paul, how's your week been? Hi, hi Smriti. Uh, my week's been really good. Um, I, it, with regards to the podcast, uh, we've had some really interesting, positive feedback uh, from a few people. Um, thank yeah. you very much to Thomas Armstrong, Arjun Pathy, and Jack Frederick all of whom have um, sort of either posted interesting Twitter threads exploring some of the ideas that we've talked mm-hmm. about or just reached out uh, privately to say how much they're enjoying the podcast. So, yeah, yeah. we really appreciate that. Um, yeah, thank you. You guys. However. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. However, we did receive our first um, sort of negative, I would say critical feedback, um, although I don't know if it counts as that. Um, we got a bad review on Apple Podcasts. Um, and so we just wanted to talk about that briefly because I think we would both agree that we're really open to critical feedback. Um, however, this person sort of didn't seem like they were doing it in good faith. And we just wanted to see if there was any merit to this review um, or their feedback. Um, and then she just kind of discussed the effect it had on us. So the review is titled Corrugate Episode, The Most Unhottest um, Take. And I'll just read the review. It says, this episode is chock full of quotable views about a controversial paper that was subsequently retracted. Um, And then they're paraphrasing us um, for the next three quotes. They're saying that Paul said, I haven't even read the article, but will smugly talk over my co-host who has. Um, They really didn't do themselves any favors. Their racist dog whistles weren't covert enough. So this is us talking about the authors of the paper. Um, And lastly, we don't really have the courage to call out the racist hypotheses of the paper. So instead, we'll nod our heads in agreement that the premise are plausible um, and spend more time talking about that. So um, I thought about it. It didn't really affect me all that negatively, mostly because I think somebody that instead of giving somebody feedback would just insult them, um, like... I don't think that opinions of somebody like that are worth taking seriously because if you were doing it in good faith and you really just wanted to, if you really didn't like the podcast and you just wanted to share, um, you know, critical feedback, that's fine. But if you're just going to attack the other person, then you're just going to make them angry. Um, and what you're trying to do is just get a response out of them instead of actually engaging in a meaningful conversation. And so I, I this is why I don't engage with a lot of people on Twitter because it's just full of people just trying to make each other upset Um, And I don't find those conversations, you know, meaningful or, you know, effective. So that's what I thought. Um, What about you, Paul? (sighs) I had (laughs) a lot of thoughts, as you know. Um, Yeah. Yeah. Like I did find it just upsetting emotionally. Right. Like there there was like a couple of hours there where I was just stewing, (laughs) stewing on it. (laughs) Couldn't get it out of my mind and stuff like that. Yeah. But um you know, ultimately, I, th- I think if you are talking about controversial topics um, and right. political topics and you take a stand, by definition, somebody's not going to like where you land yeah. on them because, yeah, by definition, we don't agree on these things. That's why they're controversial. Right. Um, and we, we wanted to do this pod and talk about controversial things. Um, mm-hmm. And so this just sort of comes with the territory and i think it's just something i need to get used to uh and we probably both need to get used to and just accept and i think um overwhelmingly the response to the podcast so far has been positive uh and some people that i 
really highly respect have given us positive feedback. So yeah. really, I mean, one anonymous angry person leaving an iTunes mm-hmm. review is, is, is nothing compared to the positive feedback that we've got. So yeah. we have to remember that even though it's hard, right? It's yes. like one negative review can sort of like yeah. balance out a hundred positive. But um, in terms of the content, I do think I talk over you. I'm sorry. I'm, I'm trying to work on it. Um, I don't think it's because you're a woman. I just think it's what I do because uh, yeah, I like and my I, mean, I do it too. I think like right now I talked over <laughs> you. I will. T- I talk over other people all the time and I apologize, but I don't think it's, you know, it's we're, we're just friends having a conversation a lot of times. So it's yeah. 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 I it's true. I didn't read the discussion, but I did read most of the paper and I did really understand what the controversy was about right. and most most of the paper. I yeah. do think I veer towards smugness. I I got a a uh, a librarian at my primary school called <laughs> accused me of being arrogant in grade two. And this has been a this has been a constant charge leveled at me my entire life. Oh. Um so that's that's probably there's some truth to that. Whether we lacked courage, I mean we yeah. I don't like yes. the so the charge is we weren't sufficiently outraged and we didn't call out quote unquote yeah. the racism in the paper. So I, I like I don't know really what they mean by call out. Like because we're doing an hour long podcast and it would be a right. pretty boring podcast if all we did was just say this is what they're saying and that's racist. Right. Um so what we tried to do was really sort of unpack why, right? Like and unpack like well what is problematic? Why are people upset at this? Is there any right. merit to the hypothesis? Could there, you know, and I went back and listened yeah. to the pod and I think we did an okay job of that. I mean, always it's a very free flowing conversation. So there's always things you wish you had said mm-hmm. that you didn't say or right. you would wish you had phrased something slightly differently, but ultimately yeah, we wanted to have a discussion and sort of unpack the controversy, not just yeah. sort of take a side on it and, and yell about this horrible um, right. paper. And I think like, yeah, this person probably, that's probably what they want in a podcast and we're probably not the podcast for them. No, no, we prefer having more nuanced conversations and yeah, I think we should continue doing it. Um, so in that spirit, uh, we should introduce um, today's topic. Well, well, we actually have a very special guest coming today. Very special. Um, we're <laughs> yeah, we're going to be joined by Leif Nelson, who's a professor of business administration and marketing at Haas Business School at here at Berkeley. Um, and so very, we're very excited that he's joining us. We're going to be. What are we going to be talking to him about, Paul? Yeah. So I um, have been fascinated by Leif ever since my first year and you'll hear this in the interview like I yeah. he he came to talk to a pro seminar that I was in in my first year and he was just so to me just interesting and different in just the way he spoke to us and I right you know this is this podcast has been five years in the making because I, I want to talk to him basically about a bunch of stuff that he said in right. that in that program but no Leif is um a brilliant guy he's been a really important figure in the open science movement and has just yeah. um done some really interesting work um his paper false positive psychology really taught the field really for the first time um how important p-hacking was how right. much we could be inflating false positive rates with yeah. by using researcher degrees of freedom. Um, his P-curving project with Yuri Simonson um, it has given us a really powerful tool to assess right. um, 
assess the evidentiary base of a field of research, um, even if we are only publishing positive results. So like, even if um, only, only the positive results are getting published, this tool allows us to sort of look at how strong the evidence is. And um, is it more consistent with like the null than the alternative? Um, Yeah. So really cool work. And um, yeah, I think we had a fun discussion and it goes off in a lot of tangents, uh, but I really enjoyed it. Yeah. And so without further ado, um, here's Leif. Leif, welcome to the podcast. Thank, thanks so much for having me and thanks for welcoming me. Yeah. It's our pleasure. It's our pleasure. Um, so Leif, what is your deal? <laughs> you've been, <laughs> you've been, you've been a, a key figure in the open science movement. Uh, in, in the class you taught at Haas that I was in, the reproducibility class, we all heard about how you basically single-handedly started the open science movement. So (laughs) I would, I would, I would, I would would never say that. That is like, so don't, don't feed me a ridiculously grandiose line like that. I did teach a reproducibility class. That part is legitimate. No, just tell us, I know. I think you have an interesting story, um, about, um, your, your part in the overall open science movement. So I think like our listeners would like to hear about that. I can, sure. I'll do short narrative that I don't, I'm, I'm, I'm not anticipating will necessarily go very well, but okay. So, uh, a, a long time ago, I, I went to grad school uh, in social psychology. I, I like social psych, and I ran experiments like everybody else. And I went to a, a school that had a very small uh, participant pool, which probably helped um, helped me on my way towards uh, being an accomplished p hacker. <laughs> That basically we ran studies that were inevitably tiny in sample size. So four cell designs with 45 people, that kind of thing. Yikes. Which school did you go to, by the way? Uh, I went to Princeton. Oh. Um, and, and so it meant that the only way anything ever worked was just by looking really closely at the data. Mm. Something like that. That's the way to be positively framed. Like you really have to know your data. Mm-hmm. But really what it meant was trying a bunch of stuff with it to try to find something that worked and but it was looking closely at the data if you will Mm. so that's that was the that's in the background and then i went on and ran studies and published papers and got a job i didn't publish very many papers i still still don't but i do have a job that part is definitely true um and starting in grad school in parallel uh joe simmons and i who's one of my frequent collaborators, we, we were students together. We started a journal club where student, students would come together every week and we would talk about a paper that was recently published in typically JPSB. And we'd talk for a while and we'd say, oh, there's an alternative interpretation or what, what does this mean for this adjacent literature, that sort of thing. All of that's kind of fun. Um, and so I did that every week in grad school and then I did it every week in my first job and I did it every week in my second job and then I did it every week here at at UC Berkeley and somewhere along the lines there were more and more papers where the discussion wasn't gosh I feel like there's another interpretation of this or what would this mean in the adjacent literature Mm -hmm. it was more and more I 
I just don't think so. <laughs> I don't, I don't, I don't think that could ever be the case. Mm. And, and so those conversations in journal club are, are vaguely, vaguely interesting, but sort of weird. And then we started having more of those conversations at conferences where we'd sit down at dinner with a large group of people and we'd talk through, have you, have you all read this paper? Can you explain it? Does it make sense? And after one of those dinners, uh, Joe and I, and then our friend, Yuri Simonson, were spent more and more time talking about it, um, where we decided we would try to figure out how it could be the case that so many findings seemed implausible, despite the fact that they looked fine. And so then that was shifting to us sending lots of emails and having lots of conference calls. And we were trying out different possibilities, saying maybe it's this, maybe it's that. And then somewhere in there, we essentially stumbled on what is turned into uh, identifying researcher degrees of freedom. And the reason it wasn't immediately obvious to us in a way it feels obvious now is that those things, selectively excluding uh, different outliers or trying different specifications or or, uh, transforming the data, whatever, all the things that we talk about, those are things that we did all the time. And we Mm -hmm. were taught, as I mentioned at the beginning, that that was looking closely at your data. Mm -hmm. It was not exploiting it. And so we were like, maybe that matters. I don't know. Let's let's look at that. And then that's where Yuri originally ran these simulations that he basically that end up in our in our paper that he was sending to us essentially breathlessly in the <laughs> middle of the night. He was like, Oh my god, you have no idea how much this matters. Mm. Uh, and and that was the big deal. And so from there we were like, Oh, we should we should write a paper about that. And we thought we would write a paper Basically, regardless of whether anyone would publish it, we thought it would be fun to write. Then they happened to publish it, and that's that's how I got involved. So the paper you're referring to is called False Positive Psychology. Is, is there more to the title than that? I, I forget. Yeah, there's a suffix that's something about uh, exp- maybe exploiting undisclosed researcher degrees of freedom, yeah. something like that, yeah. Um, undisclosed flexibility in data collection and analysis allows presenting anything as significant yeah and this paper it became quite a a big deal right i mean you i've always sort of found this paper fascinating because um i think i read it once in my first year when you came to talk to our prosam at, at berkeley and i think i read it but i didn't quite appreciate what it was really saying and i think it was maybe like a couple of years later that i went back to it and really sort of sat with it and thought about it and really really appreciated for the first time like how large the implications of this this paper were so i said like what what did you find like what what was the main point that yuri was emailing you breathlessly about in the middle of the night So the the basic finding is uh, so in for simplicity in the world of null hypothesis significance testing that is the basics of what we all do we say okay if I'm studying a, a non-existent relationship there's a for simplicity a 0.05 there's a five percent chance that you know what I'm going to conclude 
that I can reject the null and that in fact this other interesting hypothesis is true even when it's false. Mm. And we say, okay, so 5% is basically how much we're tolerating allowing ourselves to be wrong. And so in these simulations, what Yuri had done was say, oh, okay, let's take some really basic forms of uh, exploiting researcher degrees of freedom. That is saying, oh, what, imagine you ran a three-condition experiment and you're allowed to drop one of the conditions in when you report it. Or you collect two measures and you can report either one or the average of the two, something like that. So you go through those and you say, now you run a simulation that says, well, if you're allowed to do those things, how often do you get a significant result? And each one by itself looks harmless as part. That's the, one of the other notable things. Not quite harmless, but mm-hmm. the sort of thing like, oh, okay, so 5% is the baseline. You say, well, what, how good is it if you can drop a condition? You say, well, that's not great. It moves you from a 5% false positive rate to whatever, I forget now, but let's call it 8%. Mm-hmm. You say, that's not good, but it doesn't make you burn the building down. Mm-hmm. But what Yuri, the thing that made, that I think made us turn the corner was recognizing, well, None of these things feel bad, but if you can do them in parallel, it's a multiplicative problem. Mm. And so you can drop the condition, combine the measures, or log transform the data, or whatever it is, and you can do any combination of those, and those add up to being more than 50%. And so it means that now, if you have a little bit of latitude as an analyst, you can take on average, a completely null relationship and find a significant finding. More and often than not, And that's disconcerting. Right? Yeah, more often than not. Yeah. And, yeah. and so I think that was the turning point because uh, it meant, w- wait a minute, with everybody skilled at exploiting research degrees of freedom and everybody having incentives to find something rather than not find something, hold on, what, why on earth would we think that every finding was true, which is, of course, the foundation of, of how we're supposed to think about our published literature. Yeah, so I want to ask a question to both of you about this. So, well, your paper, this paper starts out, I mean, the first sentence is, um, you know, our job as scientists is to discover truths about the world. Um, and to start off, I mean, Paul doesn't even think that we're a real science. So, there, <laughs> so there's that. Um, and then even if what we were doing is science, then I think, and Paul, correct me if I'm wrong, you would say that most of what we do isn't really that meaningful, doesn't really re- lead to real change in the world. Um, and then, you know, Leif, you've mentioned, I mean, now and, you know, even before that, you don't think that most of what we publish is true. And so I've personally sort of just been paralyzed in my first year in grad school because I, and I think I've sort of told this to Paul, like, I don't want to just publish for the sake of publishing to just, like, you know, throw another pebble in a pile. But I also don't know, like, I would personally really love to, you know, contribute meaningfully to the field, but it seemed, like, how do I do that if the field is just a house of cards? Like, you know. Yeah. Um... I mean, it's interesting. I I, underst- I recognize your sort of existential anguish. Yeah. Um, but in many ways, you've described what I consider to be uh, the best reason to feel excited about the field. That is, if you can look at the field and you say, it is just a house of cards, then it means if you're the person that contributes findings, which are not part of that, which aren't just a house of cards it means that they're going to be even more important, even more meaningful. So 
I mean, I think of the way I I frequently articulate these issues. So you say, do I think most findings are false? You say, I say that maybe that's if you catch me on like a dark day, but I don't really, I'm not super hung up about it. I think some findings are false and I think probably more findings than there should be. Um, But I'd say the bigger picture for certainly for either of you that are successful, engaged students is that you can say, wait a minute, what is it that you like? And presumably what you like about the field is the questions that it endeavors to ask and the methods it uses to answer them. And those stay true no matter how much the existing knowledge is a house of cards. Because if you want to answer a question, you'll say, I like my question. It's about humans. It's about society. It's about behavior. How do I want to answer it? I'm going to answer it using the scientific method. I'm going to use experimentation, and I'm going to analyze those results in an empirically satisfying way. That's pretty good. You don't need to know whether JPSB is largely true or largely false for those questions and those answers to still be valid. Yeah, I mean, so the method is an interesting point because doesn't that keep changing, I feel like? Because in your false positive psychology paper, right, it's explicitly mentioned not to do the thing where you're you know, collecting data, looking at your results, and then if you reach significant, stop. But we had a conversation with Daniel Lawkins two weeks ago where he that he mentioned that that is a potential, you know, strategy to use if you're if you you know want to maximize how much you know the amount of data that you're collecting to like answer more questions for that, right? Like if you've already set your power in the beginning and you go out and collect data, it's fine to stop. Um, and med- you know, medical researchers do it all the time. <coughs> mm-hmm. So, like, these things keep changing, and so how are, you know, I feel like... Well, okay, so, first of all, uh, I, I listened to your interview with, with uh, Daniel Lawkins, it was okay. great. Daniel is great. Daniel's a very, yep. such a wonderfully subtle thinker about practical statistics, so right. I'm not going to be able to add anything on top of what he says. But I would, but I would guess is that he and I, it seemed, I'd be very surprised if we dis, uh, disagree with each other on, on this. So I would have said... The reason in our paper that we are so down on having a selective stopping rule is that it compounds every other problem. So if, if it's the only degree of freedom, everything else is fixed, you know what measures you're using, you know how you're going to test your hypothesis, you, you know, all, et cetera, all of those things. Mm-hmm. And the only one that's variable is how much data you're going to collect and how often you look at it great. It's no longer a degree of freedom. And I think the one, maybe the one difference between where Lachan stands and where I do, and I don't know if this is true, it's possible he's just more optimistic than I am. And that I don't, I, I don't think it is very often the case that researchers have constrained themselves on every other dimension and that sample size is the only one left. If that's true, then using an adopted method is right. But if it's instead the case where actually it's still the Wild West, they could drop conditions or measures or try other things, then I would rather that they be completely tied to the mast instead of having to selectively use sort of more advanced analyses. But in a world where everyone starts pre-registering their studies and all of those pre-registrations are very good and they're all carefully followed, he's absolutely right about that being... Uh, at least a uh, Pareto optimal improvement on the way things are done. Hmm. Cool. So 
I guess um, you put out this paper, um, and the field, I mean, you've seen the field around you, or at least uh, a portion of the field, become more and more aware of these issues, and really sort of start to start to think about our literature uh, in a more and more similar way to what you started to think about it gradually uh, in those conversations with your friends, where a lot of people have really just started to look at the literature with a much through a much more skeptical lens and really start to think how how much of this stuff uh, will replicate. There was that. Um, there's been some big replication efforts. Um, people have different estimates of how many how many findings replicate, how much of it's true, how much of it's false. I remember in my first year when you spoke at the ProSem, I think you said, maybe it was a dark day, but I think you said <laughs> you thought that the 36% estimate was likely an overestimate of how many findings <laughs> are replicable. And I wanted to ask you about just what you think now because i know in the interim you've done a lot of work replicating studies yourself uh you have a really interesting project now with data collada your blog where you guys are replicating studies it feels like almost every week it's it's amazing um we did the replication project with haas business school um and you've also done interesting um interesting stuff with p-curving right so i think fausto gonzalez might be leading this project where you have applied this technique called p-curving where you not to sort of get in the weeds too much but you can sort of look at p-values in published literature if you have a bunch of p-values on a similar question you can sort of look at those p-values to assess how likely it is that um that that finding is true or whether that's a literature built on essentially null null results and p-hacking um and i'm just yeah wondering about your impression now um, as a result of you know the intervening five years since I was in first year and what what your best guess is now about the reliability of like the social psych literature in general yeah. we should ask is this a good day or a dark day yeah, yeah. that's a good question <laughs> uh, it's a Friday yeah, it must be a good day it? It's a fr- yeah, it's a Friday. There you go. I must be positive on Fridays. On the other hand, I start <laughs> teaching for the semester on Tuesday, so that's, that goes in the opposite direction. Um, yeah, I, I, I don't know. I'm. I mean, I could I could generate numbers about what percentage would be replicable or something, but then I would get bogged down saying, "Well, what does it really mean?" And then I would say, "Well, how do we define what is the field we're characterizing?" So I think, so I, I don't really know. Um, I, I have come to to believe that there are much more than I... Th- Five years ago, I would have probably had a generic, bleak view of essentially any all of psychology. Mm. Uh, not like it was all bad, but it was all tied for mediocrity. Mm. Um, I've updated a little bit, uh, and I think sort of... I, I do think social social psychology is is probably less likely to replicate than, for example, cognitive science and cognitive psychology. Mm. Um, but I don't know that for a fact, and I don't really know why. I don't think that there was... I mean, social psychologists are wonderful researchers. Cognitive psychologists are. They're not better or worse. But somehow, something's different about the questions or the norms. And when we think about the rate of replication, my guess is I'm more pessimistic than... So, like, Gilbert and Wilson had, had offered a criticism of the original reproducibility project where they 
there's some line in that paper that says it's it, the, their results are statistically indistinguishable from a hundred percent replicability rate. My my guess is I'm more negative than that. <laughs> um, but but I don't I don't really know. I I think the main difference, regardless of whether it's many most papers or few papers, I think the number is definitely more than zero that are false positive findings, if you if you will, and. I certainly maintain the same belief that in reading papers, it is a, it is still an incredibly relevant question to ask: is is the finding true? Um, and of course, that's always true for all of science. But you can imagine if ninety nine point nine percent of papers replicated, you would get bored asking that question. Mm-hmm. I would say we are not at the boredom phase for experimental psychology. It is still a relevant question. And when these, like we run these replications, like you describe, that we've been involved in lots of different ways, uh, some things replicate, mm. lots of things don't, right? And so I don't know. It, I mean, I maintain a, a general skepticism, even if I, I don't think of it as pessimism or negativity. I just sort of start with the, the possibility that things might not be true. Yeah, can I ask a question about replication? So I thought, okay, so if we say that the incentives when you're doing original research is to find null results, um, is to find no significant results, is it, aren't the incentives the opposite for replications? Like, isn't it more exciting to find that, oh, there was this big study and it didn't replicate, and that's just more exciting and more publishable than if you just replicated their results? Don't we have those? Like, yeah, how do we deal with that? Like right, I'm sure there are certain replications that would right that this is yeah. the same fallacies exist in the same researchers when they're doing replications. Um, okay, so to to build up the strength of that argument, I would say it is it is inevitably the case that the most interesting result is the least expected result. Yeah. Right. So if I if I if I drop an apple out the window and it falls to the earth, no one's very excited. But if I drop it out the window and it shoots up in the sky, it's pretty exciting. Okay. So now we can say, what's exciting in a replication? And typically what's exciting is reversing the insight that we already have. And so it's exciting to the researcher and exciting to the people who read it. That is exactly yeah. the bias that you're describing. Okay. Yeah. But now let's take it a step further and we get to this world where we currently live, where if I told you that there was a rep- uh, someone ran a replication, you were expecting me to say it failed. Well, now what's the exciting result? The exciting result is to say that it succeeded. And I can believe that there is, there will always be some incentives for being the person who runs the replication looking for a moment to say, gotcha. Yeah. But I don't know. I've run a hundred replications or something at this point, and I'm here just speaking introspectively. I really, really strongly have the opposite goal. In this project that Paul alluded to on the data, data collata, where we're running replications of uh, work published in the leading marketing journals. Sorry, I'm now in this field of academic marketing. Um, it's okay. We, yeah, thanks. Uh, we forgive you. Uh, I, I'm, I'm proud to be in the discipline, but I know for psychologists, they're like, that surely is not a field, is it? But, um, 
but it's but that, that's that's where I work. Every every time we are Joe and I are reading papers and trying to select studies, we are absolutely hoping that we will find something that is interesting and will replicate. And if you read the blog posts, you'll see that Joe in particular is incredibly industrious at trying to see if there's something that went wrong with our replication. When it fails, they would say, like, it failed. What went wrong? What could have it been? So I think finding a successful replication is, it, it shouldn't be devalued. I think people really want them. They're a good narrative. Like, especially for findings that are interesting. Oh, man, I've, over the years, so many journal clubs that we've held where we've run a replication in anticipation of the meeting where have, if the effect replicates, I would want to spend the next year studying it. That is how much I want it to be to replicate. So it is not just that everything is, all the incentives are pushing the opposite direction. Um, granted, it's still a mix, but I think all the journals that have now opened themselves up to the idea of, of publishing failures to replicate, I think they have bought into the idea that they would publish successful replications as well. Uh, it's still new, so I don't know how much there is of that, but I think it'll be there as well. Yeah. I guess I would also add that replicate, replicators typically have their hands tied much more than original authors did uh, in terms of pre-registration, specifying analyses beforehand, specifying sample sizes beforehand, um, there was that one case where there was a non-replication. I don't know what it was about. I just saw it on Twitter. There was a non-replication and the replicators had been found to have not followed their inclusion criteria for studies. Uh, and they found that an effect didn't replicate, but if you followed their pre-registration to a T, the effect did replicate. To me, it's still not very strong evidence for the original effect because you know if the existence of the effect hinges on that... Um, it doesn't seem very robust to me, but I do think, you know, the fact even that they were caught out not following their plan is, is an indication to me that replicators typically uh, are doing uh, research in a more robust way than original authors. So even if there is the incentive, which I happen to think it is probably the incentive not to replicate stuff, especially like big name findings, um, uh, it's just, it's, it's harder to game, game the system as a replicator. Um, but yeah, so you said you've done 100 replications. Do you know just offhand how many have replicated versus not replicated? I definitely don't know. And they're not all done in that, with that sense. The mm. modal replication I run, and I, 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 both, I think I believe this, and I certainly hope it's, it's the case, that most people do run replications, but they run them just because they want to learn. That they're saying, oh, I'm thinking of studying that topic. How should I start? I think if you'd asked me back when I was a junior faculty member, I would have said, well, you start by assuming it's true and now doing some conceptual modification along with some moderator variable, basically just shooting yourself in the head. Now I don't do that. Now I say, okay, that looks really interesting. I want to study that. Let's start with a replication. So a lot of them are just casual that are like that. Like I, and, and it means that many of those fail, but I forget about them instantly. Mm. Like I, the way I gauged my interest in studying the topic was... Can, if I can successfully replicate this, then yes, I can keep studying it. If I can't, oh, then I'll just move on and do something else. Um, the structured replication things like the course that Paul took uh, with me last year um, or the data replicata work that we're doing, 
Yeah. Those I could at least, I could calculate a number, um, that, that at least would, wouldn't be, wouldn't be great. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but I don't really know in the, in the one from, from our class, uh, again, this class that Paul took, we ran 20 studies, uh, two, two of them were non-significant in the original. So those are kind of hard to figure out. They were also non-significant in the, in the replication. So we, I guess we succeeded, um, of the remaining 18, uh, I think th- four of them were significant in the, in the replication. So, yeah. How did you guys pick which studies to replicate? That, that was so much fun. Uh, <laughs> so the, so, we, all right. So the, the short, short, the medium sized narrative is, uh, in, uh, Dunmore, who's also a faculty member at uh, Berkeley Haas, and I co-taught a PhD seminar about open science, reproducibility, that kind of thing. Um, and we decided that as a feature of the class, we would have all the students through the semester basically, essentially each run a replication. But the project was organized around a single topic area. So we surveyed the students ahead of time asking, what are some topic areas you think we could study? It would have an operational definition, so we could have a, a way of selecting studies. So we ended up with one, um, which uh, is about the the psychological consequences of scarcity, essentially. So we we choose a definition of what it, what it would mean to be studying that topic, and it is based in part on uh, the work that they cite, in part on the way it's coded by independent coders from the class. So we'd build a large set of studies that would fall into that category. And then we literally randomly sampled from it. And in this case, literal would be fine if I told you we ran an Excel spreadsheet, but this was showing up to class with an urn with numbers in it, <laughs> whereas a different, a different number for every, for every study in the set. And so each student drew, drew a marble from the urn or whatever, and it told them, all right, you're going to be replicating study 32. And then we go look it up. What's 32? And you say, okay, it's this paper from 2017. Let's do it. So that's how I can't how, think of a better way to do science. Yeah. That was a lot of fun. Um, and I, yeah, I have to say in that case, I kind of wanted the, those effects to replicate. I mean, I guess I subjectively thought we, we might have a more newsworthy result if they didn't. But this is kind of research that... So my favorite politician, Andrew Yang, cites the research on scarcity a lot. So he, he's an advocate of universal basic income. So he's, you know, trying to eradicate poverty, right? And he loves to point to this research showing um, uh, deleterious effects of scarcity, right? So you just give people money and this research says that their IQs are going to jump by 19 points or something like that, right? So I've, yeah, I've had to sort of be that guy uh, in some discussions and just sort of say, ah, oh, you know what, like, this research might not actually be that robust. We did this replication project, not much of it replicated and stuff like that. And like, yeah. Wait, are so these discussions on Twitter? Because I don't think that counts. Yeah, no, Twitter, Twitter, Facebook. I mean, this is, yeah, like, um, but people like, yeah, people like that research. People, I think, like the idea that, yeah, if you just start start handing out money, like IQs are going to jump through the roof. We'll have all these positive effects, which this replication project, um, 
maybe says is like we shouldn't be so sure about that um but it's interesting because like a lot of social psych research is like that a lot of social psych findings are things that people want to believe are true um and when you come along with your open science hat on and you say well let's examine let's replicate that like is that really true um yeah it can feel like you're playing the heel a little bit or there's something slightly villainous to it um i mean we you know we yeah we we're in this we're in this sort of twitter world and like you know everybody's trying to cancel each other all the time and everybody's trying to sort of uh detect covert nefarious motives in other people all the time um i'm curious like in your time doing this stuff doing the pushing this sort of open science narrative and um you know casting doubt on these literatures that have told so many people so many stories that they want to believe that sort of fit the narratives that they want to tell about the world have you sort of come come into the firing line at all in terms of like political implications because i feel like this scarcity project could be you know uh could be something where people you know read into or sort of impute nefarious motives to the replicators um Hmm. whether you have them or not that's interesting um and if i'm if i'm honest i haven't thought much about it so uh, it will not surprise you to learn that I, I don't think of what I what I do is particularly uh, politically relevant, uh, either like politics with a capital P or a lowercase p. I think of it as like just sort of in, indifferent to that. Um, but you're right that once you think of like replicators as potentially having an agenda for a finding, then it looks like they're taking a position on the implications of that finding. So the scarcity one, uh, I mean, it, it, again, I, it, it couldn't be further from the truth that we have that we have a position overall, and I'm sort of with with Paul on this that it would have been fascinating if those effects had had all borne out, or many of them had borne out, because they're interesting, mm-hmm. um, and the topic is important, um, important in the sense of poverty is important. And here I'll, I'll make my sort of short note. This is as close as I get to having a political position. Um, not on that, but in general about these important topics. Uh, there's a lot of it, a lot of things that matter a lot in society. And every now and then social psychologists have something relevant to add to that conversation. It'd be really great if the thing they had to add to that conversation was always true. And so that's that's something to aspire to. But I think what gets lost, because so a standard comment that people will make, so we, uh, in our journal club, uh, we had a wonderful, wonderful researcher, Barry Schwartz, is often there, and he makes this argument. He'll say, I know that this article that we're reading is, is not perfectly persuasive, but a little bit of knowledge is better than nothing. Uh, something like that. I think more and more he will finish that statement with a question mark. Um, and it worries me. So if someone says, this is the extreme form, but if someone says we, poverty is a serious concern, I agree. They say psychologists might have something to say about it. I also agree. 
And then they say, we have figured out that the psychological consequences of scarcity is that it, as Paul says, it changes, changes IQ by 18 points or whatever. I would say, hold on, careful, because as soon as you say that, someone is going to say, good, we have figured out how to fix the consequences of poverty. And I think that's dangerous because the opportunity cost can be substantial because somewhere else there's someone who's not a psychologist, someone who's just a policymaker who's saying, I don't know, I think we should invest in more urban housing. And you're like, that's expensive, but probably really helpful. And maybe there's going to be a politician that says, but I heard that a psychologist says that all you have to do is prime people with wealth and it fixes things. That's a lot cheaper. Let's do some priming. So I think that that does make me nervous. And so it's not that I have a political position on this issue or any other. It's mostly that I think we underplay the consequences of being wrong. We tend to think being right is helpful and being wrong is neutral. Mm. And I would have said the consequences of being wrong is that someone else who, who was right never gets heard or never gets listened to. Yeah, I like that. So I also wanted to just ask you, I get the feeling sometimes talking to you that um, you're quite pessimistic about uh, the results of the open science movement, right? So um, much, m- many more people are pre-registering now, for example. And I mean, you even built one of the websites, right? Um, AsPredicted.com. That's the one I have started using since the Haas class. It's nice. It's very easy. Highly recommended to our listeners. Um, but I also have gotten the feeling from you that you are not totally convinced that this is the, these things are really leading to uh, people doing much better, more robust research. Um, and I almost feel like this. I get the sense from the, you that you kind of think that the core issues, you know, might just be a general lack of might lie sort of with the incentives of the field, uh, which are still to sort of find positive results and uh, novel results, or just with like a basic lack of competence uh, among researchers, or maybe like a basic lack of honesty. So you have sort of written about how people are pre-registering, but they're not pre-registering really in a, in a way that is tying their hands in terms of the analyses and, and stuff like that. So yeah like how do you feel you know, how do you feel about how far we've come do you think like that that people are doing things in a better way now that will lead to more sort of robust replicable results going forward um i i think i'm more optimistic than than your impression actually that almost never happens but i th- i think i think it's true <laughs> um i would say so the, the rise of pre-registration has been totally remarkable. And mm-hmm. yeah, we do have a website as predicted that I, that I know a lot about, but I'm sure Brian Nosick, uh, who's probably the other primary place where people pre-register studies, would say the same thing. There are just more and more people who are trying that. And I think pre-registration is great. I don't know if it'll solve all the problems, but it solves more than zero, and it's easy. So that's amazing. Um, and I can, I can, my, when I'm pessimistic, it's, it's because I'm impatient, not because I I think that the, the direction of change is wrong. 
And so years ago, when we first wrote the false positive paper, um, there is, there's almost nothing in academics that ever feels like there's like a physical narrative to it. So I'll tell this short story. Um, so Joe and Yuri and I were at a conference in uh, Seattle and at that time, so right around the time the paper was published, and the editor of Psych Science, the journal that had published our paper, Eric Ike, he's a professor at uh, University of British Columbia, which is not next door, but like near-ish. And so we we said, hey, can, we'd asked him, Eric, are you available to meet with us? And he was like, yeah, maybe. So we like rented a van, we drove up there, go across the border. It's all like like actual things to go find him and meet with him. And we talked to him for, so he'd read our paper and decided to publish it and all that. So that had already happened. And we were talking about trying to get the journal to change, like actually adopt the, the standards that we had proposed in, in the paper. And he was, he was polite and engaged. And I came away from that meeting being incredibly despondent, like just like, oh, I give up. Joe and Yuri were a little more optimistic. They had a lower threshold, I think, um, because Eric had said, you know what? The board is not going to be supportive, so we can look into it. But, you know, I don't, you know, I don't know. And that sounds like it's never going to happen. And I would say I was wrong. I was wrong to be despondent because it didn't change that year. It didn't change the next year, but it changed the year after that. And then it kept on changing and it didn't change artificially sort of accidentally. It changed because of Eric Ike and then Stephen Lindsay, right? There's the same person who said, I don't know. He became one of our biggest advocates. It wasn't that he wasn't persuasible or that he wasn't persuaded. It's that he just was acknowledging that things take time. And it's hard for me to picture things taking time when I feel like they should happen now. In any case, I've gotten older since then, and I'm much more comfortable with things taking a long time. So, yeah, pre-registrations didn't start right away, but now they're kind of common. And it is true that many pre-registrations that are written are kind of sloppy, and that many researchers don't adhere to them. And I would have said, that's okay. Not because it's okay to be sloppy or okay not to adhere, but it's okay to not be perfect right now. What matters is to try to keep getting better. And so if, if we look back in 10 years and we say, yeah, the old pre-registrations were terrible, but we've really gotten our game together, I would have said, that's great. There were 10 years of bad pre-registrations followed by all of history that is good, if you will. That seems like a pretty good trade. So I, I'm not optimistic that everything is great, but, I, but I'm, I can be an optimist about things going in the right direction, at least on most of those fronts. I can, I, I can find topic areas where I'm pessimistic. Cool. That's a heartwarming story. Yeah. <laughs> like things can change. And I remember like the first time, so when I graduated, like the open science movement hadn't started yet. <laughs> I'm kind of aging myself, but, um, but the first time I heard the term open science and like realized what it was, I was like, well, shouldn't that just be science? Like, isn't that what we should, right? Like, shouldn't we just call that science? Isn't that how we should be doing things anyway? Um, but the one thing that I personally, like, 
so there's, you know, replication efforts where we try to like replicate other people's research. There's also, I know in the open science movement, a lot of, um, like, um, error detection work that's going on, which I think is good and great. Like that's definitely important, but at the same time, I don't know if enough focus gets put on just educating people correctly in the first place on statistics and methods. Like I don't see enough people talking about that. And I think shouldn't that really be the intervention point, right? It's not that we correct people when they've made mistakes. It's like, how do we stop people from making those mistakes in the first place? But I don't, I don't see enough conversation about that. Um. Yeah. I mean, I think it's obviously an extremely valid point, right? So if everybody, if everybody had outstanding training on every dimension and they learned everything they were trained in, then you would say, wow, no one would make any mistakes because they're all outstanding, if you will. Um, here I'll actually appeal to Lockins again. Uh, he makes this. He makes a point, uh, sort of indirectly, um, that it is not necessarily about being sophisticated about your stats. It's sort of being. It's like having. It's building correct intuitions for how statistics should work. So, uh, I, I write about statistics, um, and of, of course, in, in different domains and. As my critics will will undoubtedly say, hopefully comfortably to my face, I'm I am I don't I'm not particularly well trained in actual statistics, right? I, I in where I went to grad school, the entirety of the statistical training was a one semester course, um, and in that one semester, we we learned a little bit about how to calculate ANOVAs by hand, um, which if you need to do ANOVAs by hand, that's pretty helpful. Uh, but that doesn't come up very often, and it was to the exclusion of, for example, learning what regression was. So I've I've learned a lot since then, um, but mostly what I have learned, especially in the last ten years, is just having a a better sense of how what statistics are doing. Even if I'm not the person who can write the sophisticated code with R, if someone shows me the results, I'm at least fine at looking at them and saying, I don't know, something seems off. Try looking at it in this other way. I think I would be happy with researchers that didn't have a tremendous toolbox of statistical skills if the one tool they retained was being able to look at their data in some, in some manner that it was entirely unencumbered by sophistication, but looking at it to say, like, you know what, it looks like something is there. We should figure out how to understand it better. Or they could look at it and say, it really looks like nothing is there please don't fire up the fancy algorithm because it might mislead us into thinking there is something. And so I would love there to be better statistical training, but I think it really should start essentially with that, with giving people a grasp of, of what data kind of looks like independent of the fancy algorithms. Does that, mm. does that make some sense, even if it's a terrible argument? I guess it makes sense. I just like, how does one develop this intuition? Like, what would you say is like the best way to do that? Uh, yeah, I, I, <laughs> I have no, I have no great answer because I'd like the, the answer for me is a, is a horribly costly one. And that is in mm -hmm. the form of, um, r run, run lots of studies and run lots of replications <laughs> and, <laughs> And so running, running replications is amazingly informative because when you run a replication, you don't have any other things that you're worried about. 
You're not trying to develop a new construct, advocate for a theory, rule out an alternative. You're just trying to execute the study. And because someone else has already done it, you even have a roadmap to look at. And so looking at replication data, it, it sort of makes you unencumbered by any of those other things. You can just say, oh, let's look, what's going on? And actually for some of the, I use the term error detection, but error detection, that's the big umbrella that includes fraud detection, right? So it's like a euphemism. Um, a, lot of, a lot of the things that have been found there are from researchers who have, uh, for some of the detection of fraud, are researchers who have fabricated data in a way that suggests that they don't know what real data looks like. Mm-hmm. And so there's a, there's a handful of examples, but the most telling of these, but no, it's not the most telling, but it's just such a great feature is this, uh, there's a paper that was retracted that had been published in, uh, I think a marketing journal, uh, maybe five or six years ago by, uh, uh, Derek Smeesters and some others. So Smeesters is the one that ended up uh, resigning from his position. Uh, and they collect willingness to pay data from people. So how much would you be willing to pay for this T-shirt is essentially what it is. If you've ever had dealt with willingness to pay data, like before you fire up the algorithm, just looking at the spreadsheet, you discover that people say zero often. They say five, they say 10, they say 20. You know what they don't say? $23. They just mm-hmm. never say it. Mm-hmm. But in that data set, lots of people say things like $23. And I see that as abstracted away from all of the statistics. That is some version of the person who's fabricating that data, however it was made, doesn't have the sense of like, oh, wait, this is not what data looks like. It doesn't have this. And someone else that was looking at it would open that data set. And I really believe this. If they just looked at the data, they would say something's wrong. This doesn't, this doesn't feel right. And I think that that's for identifying fraud. But I think for just doing basic data analysis, it's also some notion of just looking at the data and saying, okay, this, this seems about, about right. I understand what's happening. Yeah, I thought that was a really interesting week of the class where Ellen Evers, another professor at Haas, came uh, and she gave us um, 10 data sets or something like that. And five of them had been sort of found to be fabricated data. And we were, we were sort of asked to look at these data sets, run our own analyses on them and, you know, just place bets on which we thought were real data or which were fabricated. And um, That sounds like a fun assignment. Yeah, it was just a lot of fun. Um, I mean, there's a lot of things you have to th- sort of think about in that case because you know you have all these variables like the one I looked at I, for example the thing that sort of um, gave it away was just nothing really to do with the distributions or the main effects it was just a correlation with a correlation between two variables that really should have been there that wasn't there at all um, something like how happy are you today and how good do you feel today oh, like that wasn't it but it was it was something like that something where you really should see a correlation between those things and it and it wasn't there at all in the data so yeah i yeah i mean it's to me it's just shocking that people fabricate data i mean i guess i conceptually get it given the incentives structure but i just it's to me it just seems like such a big thing to do right and i actually yeah i think we had a discussion about this because i think i might have said this in the class and you were like well it's not 
it's not that different to using researcher degrees of freedom. I might be misquoting you. Maybe, yeah, but yeah. I, I, to me it is. Like, to me there's this huge difference between, oh, what if I remove outliers to, oh, what if I just enter seven in this box? Right. Yeah. I, 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 don't, have, I don't have the right the right insight. I don't know who does, right? This is the, because I can only speculate on what is the psychology of the, uh, what you refers to as the fabricateur. Mm-hmm. Um, I, but it's, it seems like it is, it is possible. So that, all right. So the narrative, so Dietrich Stoppel, when he talks, uh, so the famous, uh, fabricator in our, in our field, when he talks about it, the narrative goes on with him. Uh, he creates the stimuli, which are paper that he puts in the trunk of his car, along with the bags of candy that are supposed to be incentives. And he drives off somewhere, throws out the paper, I think keeps the candy. I think he might eat the candy. It's not obvious. I don't, I don't remember the full piece. And then, the, but the key turn is he sits down at his kitchen table, at least in my vision of this, sits at his kitchen table with a glass of wine and he opens up his laptop and he starts typing numbers into Excel. And I would say that feels really, really distant from the person who excludes all reaction times that are 2.2 standard deviations from the mean. Mm -hmm. They're very different. Okay. But I don't really know what characterizes most fraud because we don't, I think the detectors, the error detectors only detect a teeny tiny portion of it is Mm -hmm. my guess. Mm -hmm. And so I can imagine that there's someone who says, well, sure, I first exclude outliers at 2.2 standard deviations. Um, Then... Uh, then I log transform the dependent variable. And then if the result looks strange, uh, I look at it really carefully and I see if, if the result would be significant if I just switched one or two people from condition one to condition two. Mm. And then I switch them and then you're like, well, you know what? They, they, they could have just ended up assigned to those conditions anyway. Either way, I'll come back and I'll remember to edit this data set later and put it back to the way it was. Right? Like, I have no idea, but that narrative is way different than the sort of premeditated generating from whole cloth a new data set that we hear about with Dietrich Stoppel. The researcher I described was someone who collected lots of data, took it very seriously, and they just wanted it to be a little bit better. And I'd say, that's still fraud, but it doesn't have, but it doesn't have the, same, the same psychology that leads to it. And so I, I don't know. I don't know. I mean, I, both, I don't know exactly if that's, if that's true. Maybe it's wrong. Maybe, maybe that feels like stepping off a cliff and no one ever gets there. Um, or maybe it's common, right? And, and, it, and, and in the, I mean, there is some notion in the Leslie John paper, let John Lowenstein and Prelick paper where they survey researchers about the extent to which they used research degrees of freedom. They have, they ask about dropping measures or conditions and things like that. And those get relatively high numbers, but they also ask something that's like, have you ever just made up some data? And that doesn't get 0%. It's it's uncommon, but they're all uncommon. And that gets some number of people like, well, yes, sure. I guess occasionally I type in new numbers and you're like, okay, if, if someone is willing to answer that question, maybe it just means they're categorically honest 
which is weird because they just admitted to fabricating data. <laughs> um, or, or you'd say like, oh yeah, maybe people think that it's the same thing. When I ask you if you've ever dropped a condition or dropped a measure, it's the same as saying, have you ever made up data? And if there is any, if that's a gray area for people, then you can imagine that fraud is going to be relatively common. Yeah. And I guess the consequences for the field are the same either way, right? Yeah. They're... Okay. Yeah. I mean, I I mostly agree. I think that it's a very scary thing. So if I totally agree, I think that people would see it as a very threatening statement. If I said there's no difference between p-hacking and fraud, the reason being is that uh, I, t- and you both have heard this, I'm, I'm very comfortable pointing out what I think is p-hacking, and I almost never mean it mm-hmm. as a serious accusation. Mm-hmm. I mean, not that I think it's false, but I mean it as like, sure, that's a p-hack finding, it happens, no big deal. If I say, I think that's fraud, that is a, fa- that is a heavy allegation. Those are moments where the journal club discussion gets real quiet, right? Because, like, that's, that's, that's a heavy thing. And so I think it's really important for us as a field, and that's because it is true. If you're just trying to learn from the published literature, if a finding is false because it's p-hacked or selectively reported, or it's false because it's, it's fraud, you don't care because it's false. But as a field, we're humans that are going to keep doing our jobs, and so we're not just a collection of findings. Mm-hmm. So finding the person who is a fraudster, that's about finding the person who, who, who did this. It's not about the finding. And, and so we don't want to conflate them. And so in the same way, I, when papers are found to not replicate or they're found to be p-hacked, I never would suggest that they should be retracted. I think that's, that's crazy. Mm-hmm. But when findings are fraudulent, sure, of course, that's what you're supposed to do. Yeah. So. But yeah, if they're I false... Would... I was just going to ask if you think they're false, they shouldn't be retracted, but should there be any, you know, an out, like, you know, little note in the beginning saying, hey, eh, this, this is, is not really. Yeah. yeah, like, oh, yeah. <laughs> it's yeah. another bad yeah, per, per, personal <laughs> communication. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. No, I mean, no, I, like I, in concept, if we took, if the field took replication seriously, we have the infrastructure for making that work. Right. So if, if, if you write a paper that says, I think A causes B because of some other variable C, and then Paul runs a study where he says, ah, no, A does cause B, but it's because of variable D, we're great at that. Like, that is the whole purpose of the journals. It's amending each other. It's building on previous findings, mm-hmm. moderators that we hadn't thought of before, alternative interpretations. And so if we can put failures to replicate in the same mix, we learn at the same approximate rate. It's still slow, slower than it should be. But if, if in that situation, Paul publishes the finding, he says A causes B, you run a replication, and you find out, no, it doesn't. Great. Same narrative. We thought we knew something. We've updated our thinking. Sounds great. So in that version, of course, I'd like every finding to be true. But so long as we can update our thinking, I think that that's, that's healthy which is why I don't think retraction is necessary and they don't need a special badge either. We just need to be open to the idea of correcting things. But fraud isn't, you don't want to be correcting fraud. You want to be undoing it. And that's why it's its own category and why I think retraction is more called for there. Yeah. I, yeah. I think there's a world of moral 
difference between p-hacking and outright fraud. I mean, my my honors supervisor definitely taught me to p-hack. I definitely p-hacked the heck out of data and brought it to him. And I was like, hey, look, I can get, <laughs> I can get people at 0.05 <laughs> if I exclude these people and these people and these people. And he just kind of chuckled. And I know that he would never commit fraud at the same time, right? right. So um, I think that probably still to this day and definitely before your paper, people just vastly underestimated how important this stuff was, right? Uh, And there was just kind of a belief but that like, oh, well, if you just do these things and P goes below 0.04 and, you know, our theory makes sense and this other paper found this and this other paper, it's probably true. It's probably harmless. So it's probably, let's just put it out in literature and, you know, the consequences, the social consequences of a lot of what we publish uh, and not and not vast anyway so um i think yeah and i that was one thing that was fascinating to me about your paper but i also i mean my i haven't heard lately what you guys have found with your p the big p curving projects mm-hmm. but my vague sense is that it doesn't look that bad like it doesn't look like people are using all these degrees of freedom and getting false positives 65% of the time, right? Um, could you, like, I don't know where in the pipeline that pay, that project <laughs> is, but, like, could you sort of update us about where that's at and just the take-home message that you guys have found with that? Uh, I will deliver everything I can on that regard, but it is going to be less less than than you're hoping for or probably that I'm hoping for. So first... The, the project itself, um, me in collaboration with uh, Mike O'Donnell, who's a, now a professor at Georgetown, Hannah yeah, Perfecto, yeah. who is now a professor at WashU St. Louis, and Congrats. Fausto Gonzalez, who's a postdoc at NYU Stern. Uh, the four of us together decided to embark on this project where we would take 10 years of the first section of JPSB and evaluate it on the P-curve. So the P-curve is a statistical tool where you can basically characterize the underlying evidence controlling for selective reporting. So it, it should spit out an output that says, is there good evidence here? How good is it? Uh, in a couple of different ways. But you can think of the simplest output as saying, here's the estimate of the average power of these studies. Okay. That's, which is, you know, not an average is a weird metric and probably not what quite the answer you're looking for, but for simplicity, that's how I'll describe it for right now. Okay. We started that, um, I don't know, feels like about 80 years ago, but it's not <laughs> quite that long ago, but it was a, it's a long time. And it's in part because all three of them are busy and their first job is to code each of those studies by hand. Mm. And it's, it is not fast. And that's because when we write papers, we think of them in the abstract sense. We say, sure, study two tested the hypothesis, and it worked, P is 0.02. But then when you go look at study two, it actually is 1,500 words of text Mm -hmm. with 83 different reported (laughs) P-values, and only the seventh one was the one that was testing the hypothesis. Mm -hmm. And that hypothesis was never really articulated until, in some of the situations, the general discussion. Mm -hmm. And so you say, okay, that it means that you can find it, but it's hard. Mm. So they're doing that, but it's pretty demotivating because it's 
painstaking. And again, they have other things to do. All right. So that's the reason it's taken a long time. Mm-hmm. So then Paul's other question is, so what have you found? What does it look like? Um, they gave me sort of half the coding a year ago so I could talk about it in some public talk. Mm-hmm. And I would say, I think Paul is right in characterizing it. It doesn't look like a dagger in the heart of social psychology, oh, which, thank God. right. Yeah. Right. Exactly. <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm, I'm willing to interpret that as simply good, but it's prob it's probably not my first interpretation. My first interpretation is probably something like P curves, not good enough at its job. Like it's valid statistically. I'm not worried about that. And uh, there are, there are other versions that are similar to it that people have advocated for. So uh, Uli Shimak is a very public detractor of me. That is, I think, <laughs> I think he would very comfortably say that he hates everything about me, but he's highly, <laughs> but he's, but he's highly competent and has a similar tool that as far as I know, could generate slightly different or even substantially different inferences. And so he might have a better sense. But it wouldn't surprise me that the reality is that there are many shortcomings potentially with uh, social psychology or with any published literature. Some of them are going to be p-hacking, but some of them, in which case p-curve or z-curve is going to detect it, but some might be weird confounds or experiment or demand, things that invalidate the study that you wouldn't otherwise notice, but it's not about sampling error. It's Mm -hmm. about conceptual errors. And some non-zero part of it is going to be fraud. And if you're willing to fake data, Mm -hmm. you don't need to stop at 0.04, right? You can make that p-value as low as you want. And so I don't know, or it could be that everything is great, and we just happen to have a pessimistic sense from these rep, uh, replication projects. Yeah, I, I, I'm not going to commit more than that because I, I really don't know yet. So, well, I remember you saying something to me once, which was that um, there's a big difference here between experimental research and correlational research, right? Um, in correlational research, uh, it's not that hard to get low p-values. Uh, you just need to sort of leave out confounds or you know, misspecify a model or something like that. Because when you're just measuring aspects of the world, and we talked about this with like country level data, very often everything is correlated with everything and you can get low p-values, but it doesn't really mean this is good evidence for what you're saying it's evidence for. So are you distinguishing between observational versus experimental data in this project? Yeah, we, well, by, by design, I think so. We're trying to, we're trying to only target experiments, but um, there, and here my three co-authors would know better than me exactly how they're, uh, the marginal cases, things where if, if a variable is, uh, measured rather than manipulated, but it's treated as though it's an experimental variable that is think gender for the time being, mm-hmm. uh, how do they, how do they think about that? Um, but no, it's, it's clearly the case with correlational data that it's a, t- it's just a different with any observational data. It's it's just a different question that you're you're operating with, and so here the so Paul Meal. I'm not an expert in Paul Meal, right? Paul Meal is one of the sacred entities within the open science community, where basically if you're like Paul Meal says that you yeah. should you know butter your toast this way, everyone's like, oh, it's so true. Um, so so I'm not an expert, but I but I, I have read a couple of his papers, and one of one of them uh, that's in the domain of sort of talking about uh, actually meta analysis. Um, 
he uses this construct that shows up in a few other places that's the crud factor, mm. which is a, an entertainingly non-technical sounding term for essentially, if you measure a bunch of stuff, they're going to be a little bit related to each other. And in that domain, if you crank sample size up to infinity, you start finding things. But the other part is that if you measure lots of things and you have a little bit of crud factor everywhere, you can always find something. And so in those domains, yeah, I mean, P-curve is not unrelated to it, but it also feels like it's not the approach that you want to have. Same with like pre-registration doesn't necessarily help there either. Mm. You kind of want to be able to, this is where, so I have this other paper about specification curve that falls into a broad category, which people now refer to as multiverse analyses. Um, I don't really know how to use that term, and I find it vaguely like an Asimov novel concept or something. <laughs> but uh, but either way, I think, and it's possible there that in a large correlational world, you're trying to just sort of see what's related, not take a position on can we can we reject the null or something like that, which mm-hmm. is not quite sufficiently informative. Yeah, I I, hmm. I think crud is interesting to me because what what Meal is saying is that actually these are true relationships. Uh, right, and they're just there for us to misinterpret. So it's not... I mean, P-curve would still be doing its job if it said, no, these are true relationships, but then it's just in how we interpret it and how we tell causal stories about it, and just that's where we make mistakes there in terms of the crud factor. So, yeah. yeah. I, so I Sorry, have one I, I'm realizing that there's no video for this podcast. That was me nodding vigorously as Paul <laughs> was, was articulating that. Yeah. I have one more question, but like it's just kind of a joke question. So, Smriti, do you have uh, uh, do you have anything? Do else? I have any serious? Because I think you need to go, right? You've... <laughs> yeah, I should I, mean... I should go relatively soon, as should both of you. I'm not that interesting. <laughs> no, you keep saying that. Oh my god! So in our emails, when I was trying to set this up, Leif just kept saying again and again, "I just don't think I have anything interesting to say." <laughs> and I don't know if this is false modesty or you genuinely <laughs> believe that, but. Like, it's so absurd. Like, you, you have nothing but interesting things to say. Come on, man. Like, I have, I have lots of opinions. That's, those aren't necessarily interesting. But okay, like it is need, not false modesty. It is like a, we need a genuine a anxiety. Okay. Intervention <laughs> to make. Like, because, like you say, you, this is the first podcast you've ever been on. Um, you also said before we started recording that you had an amazing sounding voice. So I don't know. Like, I'm getting mixed messages. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's amazing sounding voice is, is, is false. I like that. Um, I will say I was a radio DJ in my past. Really? And so, oh, wow. and so anybody who heard me back from then, they, they keep waiting for me to go into a DJ voice and people will call me on it every now and then. Uh, the DJ voice wasn't, it wasn't like a sultry, excellent voice. It was, I was a, I was a college radio DJ. So it meant that I, I mumbled and spoke without affect for long periods of time. Uh, so I can still pull off that trick occasionally. So this is college radio, and this is like circa, like, the 90... When were you in college? Yeah, it was when I was in grad school. This is, uh, it, this is from 2000 through 2003. That's really hmm. cool. Did you ever see that movie, Pump Up the Volume? Christian Slater? He was this yes, college yeah, radio. That, yeah. yeah, that is not what it was like. Uh, <laughs> I love it that he had the, uh, Christian Slater had the entire high school hanging on his every word. I think I had three, maybe four listeners, and they pretty much wanted to call in and talk to me about experimental rock music from the 1970s. So I don't know. It was a different. It was a different uh, scene. Sounds, yeah, pretty close to me. Yeah. yeah. 
I do have a question. Was that your fun question? No, actually. <laughs> okay, but okay, I, I that, guess that was kind of fun. Well, I okay. So you in the beginning of the podcast, you said that you like social psychology. So I just wanted to ask you why, because I I I, I sense a lot of just you know pessimism with like, like people just don't think social psychology is that important or that helpful, and I just that depresses me a lot. So I, I would like to hear why you like social psychology. Sure, that's kind of fun. Um, so let's let's start with psychology. So. The definition I learned uh, back in high school is that psychology is the study of human and animal behavior. Okay, so first of all, take animals out of it. I don't really study animals, I study humans. And you say, like, I think human behavior is fascinating. Um, I probably think it's a little bit less, like, magical than I did uh, 10 years ago or 20 years ago. But I think it's still amazing, complicated, interesting hard to understand, and when you can understand it a little, it feels remarkable. Okay, so that's human behavior. Then you start carving it up and you say, some people think that baby behavior is fascinating. Babies are really neat. I don't study babies. Other people say, wow, it is so interesting to find out which frequencies of a flash gradient people are most responsive to. I am not that person either. Other people study which regions of the brain are most active under which circumstances. I'm not interested in that. But some people think it's really interesting to study, for example, how people form their preferences and how they make choices based on those preferences. Now, that sounds narrow and dumb to a lot of people, the people who study babies or perception or whatever. But to me, I think that's so neat because I don't know the answer to those questions, but I do know that they are answerable. And so it means I can say, I wonder how people make choices. I wonder how they make judgments. I wonder how those are influenced by normative standards or how they're influenced by idiosyncrasies of human thinking or human feelings. And because I wonder, because I'm curious, it's then fun and satisfying to solve that curiosity. And so for me, getting into this was all those years ago, back taking experimental psychology classes in college, most of the findings I learned, I'm a little bit skeptical of, but not at all that they were asked or that someone tried to answer them. And so I still want to do that. I still enjoy feeling like I'm learning a little bit of something about human behavior. And yeah, the curiosity doesn't go away. And social psychology piques my curiosity, as I think it would for anybody that actually studied the topic. Or even people who don't study a topic, right? I think one of the most fascinating things about social psychology is applicable to everybody. Like it's like accessible to everybody, which is a you know blessing and a curse, I think, because it, then there's more um, room for misinterpretation when it goes into the public. But right. I agree. Thanks, life. Okay. On to your fun question. <laughs> Final question. So in our first year pro seminar, you came to talk to us, and. I'll never forget it because like to me you just kept saying fascinating charismatic things and I right. you just talked to us you talked to you us said, in a you way said you weren't differential Paul what's that nothing yeah you talked to us in a way that professors just don't typically talk to first year students and I I remember thinking wow this is this is so cool this is so fascinating so one thing you said was like I know a little bit about statistical power. You all might think that you know 
a little bit about statistical power, I promise you that you don't. And it was just this bomb and everybody's like, oh, wow, like, this is different. But anyway, like in that pro seminar, you basically, you sort of like laid out this uh, binary theory of personality. So this Leif Nelson binary theory of personality where, and you said that everybody is either a dove or a hawk. And you told us in this like, just calm, like matter of fact way. And you said, I'm probably more hawkish than anybody in this room. (laughs) (laughs) And I'm just like, so my question is, it has multiple parts. Like, do you still subscribe to this binary theory of human personality? Um, What, what, how do you think uh, people can like self-diagnose as hawks or doves? Uh, And, and what, what, what am I and Smriti? Uh, Let's do those in, in reverse order because it'll make it more mysterious uh you're you're both you're both mostly hawks yeah um that's good right that's a good thing well we'll find we'll find out you can you can you can you can you can you can can self-diagnose by by ask asking if you have ever pre-registered a study oh and then uh i the term i use back then uh paul's remembering from so many years ago i still use occasionally (laughs) <laughs> and I am I am borrowing the language of the Vietnam War. That when people talked about uh, the war, there were hawks and there were doves. Mm. The hawks thought we should invest more, more military, more more effort in that direction, and the doves said, "No, peace, love, and understanding." That sort of thing. Now, in that domain. I would have said I wasn't alive then, despite what you might think. Uh, but I would have been a dove. But when I say hawks and doves, I largely mean the replicability movement. And in that domain, I'm saying, mm-hmm. yeah, there's going to in those conversations where we're saying, should we require disclosure of methods? Should we require pre-registration? Should people post their data? Should replications be published? On those issues, there are hawks and there are doves. And I guess I could go either way. Maybe I should have rebranded as a dove. It feels so much <laughs> more palatable. Um, but I think of, I, I think of the, the views I have as hawkish. Mm. That is, there should be more change. We should be actively doing something. And I think of the doves as drawn from the category of everything is fine, don't worry about it, and so on. So it's not that I think hawk, hawkishness applies to all domains of life. Mm-hmm. I, think of ha- I think of myself as a hawk, and I think of you two as hawks in the domain <laughs> of contemporary experimental psychology. Yeah, I read a really interesting Twitter thread recently where there's a professor who was basically asking his uh, college students, if you were alive uh, during slavery in the U.S. South, would you have opposed it if you were a southerner? And he says that, you know, without fail, 90% of them say, yes, I would. Uh, and he's just like, well, this can't actually be true because yeah. very, very few people in the South opposed slavery in that time. So I guess what I'm saying is you can't be sure that you would have been a dove <laughs> at the time I, of the I, Vietnam I, I, I War. I will and your say, attitude I will to open I'm... science, if anything, <laughs> suggests I, that you might have just been like, yeah, bomb them. 
Napalm. Yeah, maybe, it. maybe. I, I grew up in I grew up in Berkeley, though, man. So, <laughs> like, I, both, both of my parents were hippies. They were delegates to the Peace and Freedom uh, Party convention in 1968. So, I was raised I was raised to be a dove. What's growing up in Berkeley like? Oh, you know, it's exactly what you would expect. I was a kid, so it's all the same. But it meant that. I, <laughs> yeah. It meant that it was. It, it wasn't until I was, you know, whatever, uh, eighteen, that I first met someone who self-identified publicly as mm. a Republican. So, yeah, there's not many of them around here. Yeah. Or I was thinking, what if they just change their mind after they come here? Right. Yeah. That's yeah. possible. <laughs> yeah. Right. It's like <laughs> impl- implicit attitudes, isn't that purely regional, Paul? You know something about that. So it could be the same. <laughs> well, no, actually, glad you asked. Uh, <laughs> no, no it's, uh, there's much more um, within region variation than between, re- between region variation in implicit mm-hmm. attitudes, whatever the hell those are. Anyway, another, that's a story for another podcast, I think. Okay. Um, thank you so much for coming yeah, on. Thank you, Leif. It's going to be a long yeah. podcast, um, but that's but cool. a fun one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I think it's all gold. And I don't know. We could edit some of it out, maybe. Yeah, edit as much out as you as you yeah. can. Or, yeah. Uh, yeah, but thank you both for inviting me. Uh, it's always always enjoyable talking to both of you. Great. Yeah. Thanks. All right. All, All right. right. Good. So I'll we talk to you will. Soon. Yeah, talk to you soon, and we will yeah. talk to you, the listeners, soon, in like a week. Yeah. Excellent. Bye. All right. Bye. <laughs> Bye.